Today's podcast is brought to you by Horizons Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation ETF, which trades on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the ticker symbol HRAA and is sub-advised by Resolve Asset Management. HRAA is an alternative fund whose investment objective is to seek long-term capital appreciation by investing directly or indirectly in major global asset classes, including, but not limited to, equity indices, fixed income indices, interest rates, commodities, and currencies. HRAA gains exposure to these asset classes by investing in derivative instruments that may include future contracts and forward agreements and securities. HRAA will take long or short positions, using up to a maximum of three times leverage in asset classes such as equity indices and fixed income asset classes, commodities, currencies, volatility indices, and other alternative asset classes. HRAA could provide balance to your portfolio by harnessing three unique investment styles. The first is an actively managed global risk parity portfolio to provide maximally diversified global exposure in optimal risk balance. The second is a proprietary systematic global macro process that attempts to profit from short-term market moves, going both long and short on more than 50 global markets. Finally, HRAA uses a dynamic tail protection overlay that attempts to profit from large moves in volatility markets. To learn more about this, please visit www.horizonsetfs.com HRAA to read about the ETF's investment objectives and important disclaimers about the risks associated with an investment in the ETF. Hello and welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everything in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. Good, Good afternoon, Friday. everybody. Happy Friday, guys. Cheers. 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 Larry, welcome. Thank you. What are you drinking? That's a rum and coke, right, Larry? It's (laughs) it's a coffee and coffee. Oh, okay. Coffee. Where are you? The coffee is not, this is not late in the day for coffee. I am in Chicago, but my head is on California time. Ah, And I I live out there in the winter and I'm going there in a few weeks. So, so. uh, Gotcha. Coffee is the stuff for me. Mike is going to do a bit of a disclaimer. Go ahead, bud. Oh, yeah. So just as a reminder to uh, everyone listening on a Friday afternoon, it this is for entertainment purposes only, and it is not to be taken as investment advice of any kind. It's not to be taken as advice of any kind of any kind. So if you would like advice on something, go get a professional, not four scallywags on YouTube having three drinks and a coffee. And with that... We can really let have a chat. <laughs> Precise. That's the kind of Precise. formal disclaimers that, that we like at, at Resolve, I'll tell you. Um, Quick Larry, thank point. you so Yeah, exactly. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Yeah. Um, just for those who don't know, Larry is the is research director, right, for the CFA Institute. How long have you been doing that? Because I think you have been in that role for, for quite a while. You're sort of an institution there. Well, since 2005, but it's part-time, and I was at the Ford Foundation as their head of research until 2009. So I, I overlapped, and I also uh, am the research director not for the Institute, but for the CFA Institute Research Foundation, which is an independently governed 
organization that commissions monographs, which are books, and briefs, which are articles. And uh, we we are independent in that we don't just serve the needs of the CFA Institute and its members, but the general public and our our researchers, the people that uh, Bud and I give grants to, uh, it's like a university. They're supposed to follow the research wherever it takes them, and we we don't tell them what what, what to do. So do you play a role then in um, vetting and choosing articles for the Financial Analyst Journal then? Is that one of I the... Did. I did. I, I was on their advisory board and I termed out after 12 years. So now I play a role as I have since the late 80s or early 90s in choosing articles for the Journal of Portfolio Management and the Journal of Investing, which are a different organization those are unpaid uh, uh, you know, jobs that you do for for fun and to keep your name in the papers. Do you and also participate? A, um, yeah, sorry, Adam. I just wanted to understand because I, I, I follow the CFA uh, Institute curriculum quite closely, and I, I noticed that it changes quite a bit every year, and it, and, and it does try to keep up with the most recent trends in the industry. Uh, uh, particularly after the 08, 09 uh, period, mortgage-backed securities and stuff like that became very prominent in the curriculum. And then more recently, uh, the blockchain revolution has also featured prominently. Are you are you part of that decision to sort of uh, uh, curate the content that would be eligible to, to, to be added to the curriculum? No. I, my, my responsibilities are really to the Research Foundation only, and it's to get books and articles selected, then curated in, in the sense that I edit the books and published. And, and we uh, are quite separate from the CFA Institute's education. Uh, I, I don't really know what is in the curriculum at this time. Neither do I. But Richard has just been through the curriculum recently, right? What is it? Was it two years ago, Richard? Three years ago? It was actually closer to the seven, but uh, thanks. Seven for, years ago. For, Man, yeah, time yeah. flies. Yeah. <laughs> Made me feel a little younger there. I appreciate that. Yeah, I'm also not a CFA charter holder. When I joined the Ford Foundation, one of the requirements was to either sit for the exams or already have passed them. But but I'm so old that I was exempt because I had an MBA from the University of Chicago in finance, and that was considered to be uh, even better. We had 11 Nobel Prize winners. The Nobel Prize is yet to come on the faculty, so... Uh, at, very, at various times, not all at once. Uh, so w- we would have classes. You know, we were a bunch of 22, 23-year-olds, and we'd have classes where the professors would be handing out mimeographed papers, and, and those would later win Nobel Prizes. But we didn't know that at the time. We just thought that they were uh, uh, something the professor wanted us to read, so they, they typed it up. Yeah, well, Fantastic. much of the seminal research that... Um, is covered in the CFA curriculum, I know, is informed by or motivated by a lot of the research that comes out of University of Chicago. So um, I'm sure you have an intimate understanding of of a lot of the core subject matter. Um, And then also you've got, um, I guess, and and this is something that you're, I think, probably most excited about at the moment, this project where you've written a book called Fewer, Richer, Greener, Prospects for Humanity in an Age of Abundance. And I will warn you that that, um, on riffs, we have tended to skew 
a little bit pessimistic. Um, we had Steve Keen on the podcast. I don't know if it was two weeks ago or three weeks ago, who's calling for a climate collapse in the end of capitalism in the next 10 years. So this will be a breath of fresh air for many viewers of riffs. And um, so, so we're looking forward to uh, adding a little optimism to our repertoire. Um, well, we're, we're not going to have an end to capitalism and the climate is changing. And it, it, these, this presents real risks uh, that I shouldn't minimize, but it's happened before, right? My ancestors uh, who are Jewish, Jewish came here uh, partly because of religious persecution, but also for the same reason that non-Jews came here from Europe, which is that the, Europe was going through a little ice age between, say, 1600 and 1880, and uh, food was becoming scarce in the northern parts, Germany, so Netherlands and so forth, and England, and uh, things were better here. So uh, we faced much worse problems in the past. We didn't have the technology. Uh, we didn't have airplanes, weather satellites, uh, instantaneous communication, uh, cheap, not free, but fairly cheap transportation. And so we're, we're going to rise to these challenges. And I'd uh, like to uh, start by saying that the, the why I wrote the book and then what happened with COVID. The children were coming home and telling their parents, why did you have me when the earth is going to be a rotating cinder before I'm a before I'm a mature adult, and uh, of course it's not true, but that's what children are being taught, and they believe it. I mean, you, you look up to your teachers, and uh, what is true is that we face a different set of challenges than we did in the past when we uh, had to get our kids through plague, smallpox, polio. World Wars One and Two and the Great Depression. Now, compared to that, these challenges are fairly uh, moderate, but they're they're not non-existent. Uh, about two hundred million people out of the seven or eight billion people in the world live in areas that are threatened by rising uh, water levels. But two hundred million people move internationally every year, so we're basically one. That's, that's one year's international migration extra that we have to uh, deal with. We have, uh, well, let me just uh, share my screen. And uh, yeah, I believe, that's great. I believe this will work. Uh, somebody has to. Yeah, we see it. Tell me how to do it. Thank you. And, and then. Uh, is as I change what's on the screen, that's right. You can see the, the little guy. Yep. Yep. Uh, yes. The little yep. prince, is he? Yeah. Uh, uh, the, the first thing I wanted to mention is that the population explosion is almost over. When we were all going to die because we were going to populate ourselves off the earth. Uh, we, we'd all be starving. Uh, there'd be 15 billion people on Earth by now and uh, you know, 3 trillion by the end of the next century. And uh, we all read the limits to growth in high school, or read about it. And uh, it, none of it's true. Uh, what happened was that people adjust to changing incentives. Uh, it's now much more fruitful uh, to have fewer children and invest more in each one of them 
than to have a lot of children and hope that a few of them live to, to, to be able to work on the farm and support you in your old age. So all around the world, uh, the population explosion is, is coming to an end. Uh, in Africa, it's less than in the rest of the world, but I'll get to that. But by the way, this, this poor guy, we're not going to get down to one person. Uh, there's been a lot of talk now that we're having too few children and the population is going to shrink too fast. I'm not all that excited about that either. I think that incentives will change yet again. If there aren't enough children, people will uh, respond, respond by having more of them, but there's no actual guarantee of that. So if you look at this hockey stick that everybody is familiar with, the population of the world began to take off really in this uh, period around 1800 and that the, the, the big growth was in the 20th century. But let's, let's, uh, let's look at it in log scale. Uh, what happened is that the, between 1900 and about 1975 to 1985, what we had this hyper growth phase. And then as all exponential growth does, because <laughs> nothing grows forever, uh, it began to slow and it, it slowed but not stopped. And the question is, where, where does it stop? Does it ever stop? And uh, let's see what's actually happening here. The blue countries are the ones that are shrinking fastest. That They're a subset of the green countries where <clears throat> populations are shrinking the fastest. Spain, Ukraine, uh, Belarus, some of the Baltics, Italy, some of the Balkans, Japan, Taiwan, and there were maybe uh, Singapore. So it, this is essentially the first world, plus a couple of, I don't know if you call Brazil first world or not, but it's close, Iran, um, China. You were on the slide with um, the different colors for the different countries based on their um, population replacement rates. Population growth rates. Yeah, okay, great. I, I was saying that after my little population talk, we, we should go back to the, the, the four talking heads and talk about that if you want. Otherwise, I'll I'll just go on, on into Richard. But let me yeah, share the screen and let, let me go over yeah, go a couple ahead. of things that I said here. And uh, I'm going to share the window with the population information and uh, see if that works. And... Uh, what I had said was that Africa is now on the path, but not very far along the path, that Asia was uh, a third of a century ago. Uh, I hope that Africa develops at that pace. I don't think it will, uh, because Asia had a, a kind of a substrate of, uh, of what was very, very poor in the middle of the last century. It had China and Japan in particular, but also to some extent India, had histories of having been developed in the, in the distant past, and so they had more, more human capital. Africa is, uh, uh, is developing very nicely from a very low level. That is going to take a while. By the end of the century, uh, African incomes should be uh, They'll still be the lowest in the world, 
but should be in the middle income category, which is really my goal for the world here. Not, not that I run the zoo, but, but uh, if everyone in the world has the opportunity to live a middle class or at least lower middle class life, then economic development has achieved its purpose. Now, I was going to talk before going into this, uh, uh, this section on, on incomes about what happened with COVID and what happened to my book. Uh, it sold very, the book sold very well for the first few months, and it was kind of a high point in our own economic development. We were in a boom period. And when COVID hit, literally nobody wanted to hear an optimistic, futuristic talk. But the future was we went back to we're all going to die, and along the way we're going to get very poor. And what happened was pretty bad. And once in a while... Uh, the direction, the arrow of economic progress turns around and runs the, long, the wrong way, the long way. And it, it really was awful in the spring of 2020. But we had a collapse comparable to 1929 in, in output. And the stock market fell faster than it had ever fallen. But it did not last long. And partly because of central bank action, partly because the market reacted to low prices, by sellers turning around and becoming buyers. Uh, We had a V-shaped recovery in the markets and later a V-shaped recovery in the real economy. Unbelievably, TSA uh, flow-through, throughput, I guess is the word they use, is back to something like 90% of its of its 2019 level without any business travel at all uh, restaurants are you know, 60 or 70 percent so we're, we're experiencing a, a, a very powerful recovery simply because people want to live the way they did before covid and, and can't quite uh, you know we walk around with masks in some areas we walk around Hopefully, with vaccines, uh, I'll get off my soapbox. But this thing would have been all over by April if we had all gotten our vaccine. Because you don't have to have a hundred percent. The disease dies out when you reach herd immunity. But, but uh, the economy is okay anyway, and we're experiencing something that we haven't had in decades, which is a critical labor shortage. I was served breakfast by the owner of the breakfast place uh, the other day. Uh, I don't think he's even been in the building uh, until COVID. Uh, He he was just sitting in his beach house getting rich. uh, They have no workers, and so he's the worker. And and then we see that everywhere. Help wanted signs, $16 an hour and up, when it was $9 an hour. uh, Where have all the workers gone? Are they just sitting at home with their stipend checks? I, that's part of it. I don't know. Uh, first of all, in states where the stipend checks have been smaller or have ended entirely, that the labor shortage is less severe, but it is still severe. So where have they gone? I, you know, that's. I have a hypothesis in the spirit of. Um, you know, discussion and debate. Yeah. 
Yeah. Go for it. Yes. It seems it seems to me that the labor shortages are mostly in service industries and they tend to be in major urban centers. Yeah. And the other thing we're observing in major urban centers is a an explosion higher in home prices and um, increasingly rents. And my yeah. observation is that the the rents are now so high in in many major urban centers that the wages required to support um, basic living standards for service sector employees are, you know, they're they're just not they're just not able to support the required rents, and so you've got service sector employees leaving major urban centers to find accommodations that they can afford. So, so this trend, I, I, I would I would buy that for a minute, but I happen to own a cheese factory called Upper Canada Cheese in Jordan Station in the middle of the heart of rural Niagara. And we are experiencing extreme uh, job shortages and having to increase wages by 20 to 40% in order to keep people. Has there so, not been a major uptick in home prices in that region in Niagara though? Niagara, well, there has been, but it's pervasive. It's across the whole service industry. Like there's not, there's not anywhere that hasn't had a rise in home prices. How far away from Toronto do you want to go? There's nowhere that hasn't had a And it's a, not a, a recent phenomenon, right? You need to go a long way. In, in, What's we, not a recent phenomenon? You need to go to North the, Bay. The, like, the rise in home which prices. Which is not what people are going to do. So I'm just wondering where the workers went because in the rural areas, just outside of Toronto, as an anecdotal example, but it's pervasive across the whole region, you can't get anybody at minimum wage anymore. I have some yeah, people no, who own Tim Hortons. Tim Hortons in yeah. North Bay is no better off than Tim Hortons in Toronto. Unfortunately. Really? This is where I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, but if I'm you're perplexed. already in North Bay and you don't have any, you don't, you don't have a job, where, where are you going to go? So you, you well, I, I don't know what the minimum wage is in Ontario, but it, it, it can't be enough to live on in Toronto, but it, no. you're saying it's not enough to live on in North Bay either. Well, well, the home prices in North Bay are up 42% year over year. Right. So, <laughs> so right. But that is a prices, Adam, <laughs> Adam, this rise in home prices has been occurring for, call it the last decade on a yearly basis. I think the, the crucial variable here that is different this year is the fiscal support in Canada through CERB and in, in the Nonsense. U.S. Through, through, Completely disagree. You, you think that has no basis, no foundation to keep people at home and, and to raise their opportunity costs to, to some extent. I think it would work the other way. You want when when prices go up, you need more money. So if you just go on strike and say, "Well, I'm going to wait for thirty three dollars an hour," your employer doesn't have it, and you're, so you're not going to get it. And that's, by the way, that's about the reservation wage for service workers in high cost areas. And my my rent in San Diego, which is a beach house, doubled this year. It's not forty percent; mm -hmm. it's one hundred and five or something. Yep. Um, Absolutely. But uh, so I talked to the guy that owns the, the, the breakfast joint and I said, well, if you're making $16 an hour, which is, it's not the minimum wage there, but it's about the minimum wage. It, it, what, and they're not coming in. What would it take to get them to come in? He said, it's about double. It's about 30 to $33 an hour because the, the government benefits come with health care. 
which is worth seven or eight dollars an hour. And if you're working as an employee, you, you lose that. You have to pay it yourself. The, the employer may buy it for you, but then they're going to deduct. Oh well, that completely you. changes the the math. I had no idea that you got health benefits with government. Um, yeah, you go on Medicaid distributions, right? On and, top of an eviction moratorium, which has been in place and is now being being challenged. So, uh, right. the only difference recently has been COVID, the lockdowns, and then the subsequent uh, support. Because the, if your hypothesis were to hold water, Adam, why would wouldn't this have occurred earlier throughout the rally in home prices? Well, there's a, there's a there's a few dynamics, right? One is the marginal cost of living has gone up, like for rent, anyways, has gone up by between whatever, 40% in many urban, urban markets to 100% in many sort of vacation markets or rural yeah, yeah. markets, whatever, right? And yeah, in places that are nice, it's closer to 100. But the average is probably more like 20 to 40. Yeah, so you've got a massive shock, right? People were living at the margin before. They were, you know, they, they had never really considered, am I going to move? You're like, you're in the rat race. You're going to work every day. You're barely making ends meet. And then you've got everything goes on pause. And so you now you're sort of considering, right. A, my rent's going up. I, I, I'm looking, staring in the face of the fact that I can't afford to live in this place anymore. So now I'm looking around, where am I going to live and what am I going to do? You're, you're checking all your premises. You're making different choices. And at the same time, um, the cost of living is going up, right? So I, you know, there's there's obviously a variety of different forces. At it's play, a multivariate problem, of course. It's not just the, the single thrust of home prices rising uh, that is dictating the the move away from major urban areas. Well, yeah, I mean, I don't know what a forty percent one year shock higher in cost of living would have done in non COVID times. I'm pretty sure it would have motivated pretty substantial. So where where are they going? I don't. Action. I still don't understand. Because in Saskatchewan, well, the it has the lowest unemployment rate. I don't get, like, they're not, it's pervasive. The, the, Are we the, experiencing the, these types of The issues rise in, in wages is, yeah, it's pervasive across the country that we're having inflation in Canada anyway and, and ri rising wage prices, but the real wages of employees is not going anywhere. It's not. It's well, going it, slightly down, actually. Yes. In real times, yeah. Well, I live in a different country, but we're experiencing <laughs> right. the exact same thing. Right. So it's not our policies. It's something going on in the real economy under the surface. And first of all, I've, I've had a big concern for a very long time that minimum wage and close to minimum wage employees are actually overpaid. That they're they're hired because you don't. It, it, they're, they're, they're zero marginal product or negative marginal product employees that they're actually destroying your business <clears throat> through incompetence and inability to operate the machines or whatever. But but you hire Should them. Should put them through the meat grinder? What's the solution there? <laughs> well, I, I don't know. They may wind up with some sort of a broader social welfare uh, system of something more like a negative income tax. But, but I the incentives there are also scary, but I think the reason why they're still at work or we're still at work is because they used to be useful. And labor markets are very stable. When you hire somebody, as, as David Oxar said, when you, if you get a job changing tires when you're 18, 
you may still be changing tires when you're 65. So you unless better- there's a phase shift in, in in technology and in the labor market. So so I I, I think this is a great yeah, point that tires start begin to change themselves. That's right. Right. Yeah. So so that's where I kind of wanted to get uh, on and maybe go back to your original premise, the techno optimism. What are some of the major assumptions that are underpinning your, your this hypothesis that we are actually in an age of abundance and and, and techno optimism? If you could. Uh, uh, drill into some of the major points, and then we can kind of maybe debate them uh, as you go. Sure. Uh, let me start uh, with the income chart that I was on. Let's see if I can figure out. Yeah, thank you. And, and uh, let's just take a look at this. If you make the usual economist assumption that that people are worth what you pay, uh, incomes have been rising at a remarkably steady 1.8 percent a year in the United States since the beginning of the country's existence. And it started out at two or three thousand, now it's about sixty-eight thousand. Um, the the growth rate has tailed off recently, but it tailed off a few other times in the nineteen thirties and went ne- negative. And then right after World War II it grew at about the same rate it is now, tailed off and then we had, went through a couple of other rough patches. And so, but what's more important is the world. The world is growing like the United States did. And that has also gone back to about 1850 to 75. And the, this sharp rise toward the end here is China, India, uh, at the beginning of the period, it was Southern Europe places like that. So there there seems to be a natural growth rate of, uh, it's not natural in the sense that it happens all by itself. It it happens because people work hard to get their standard of living to be a little better next year than it is this year. And it requires capital. It requires peace so that you're not destroying capital by blowing things up and it requires human capital, which is education and, and ambition and training and so forth. And, and nothing's really changed here. The, the, we went from an agricultural economy to an industrial economy in this period, a little earlier, had tremendous growth. We went from an, from an industrial to a let's call it an information-based economy in, in this period had had tremendous growth. And that now we're in a little bit of a, of a rut, but I, I actually think that this understates the rate of growth in the 21st century, because we're, if you figure that the goods and services in the economy are worth what you pay for them, then anything that helps save money and do things more cheaply comes out of the GDP measure, even if it, increase in the quality of life. It, a, a 2021 car is so much better than a 1971 car that you, you can hardly compare them. They, so you're making the case for the hedonic adjustments that are so, sometimes criticized in, in CPI calculations. So maybe we can dig a little bit into this this general framework for for justifying this this optimism. So you're you're, you're starting yeah. off with they actually underdo the hedonic adjustment. 
How do you compare the value of riding a horse with the value of driving a car? You can't, so they make something up. How do you compare the value of having a computer that's the size of an office building with the value of a computer that you carry around in your pocket that's 100,000 times as powerful? You can't, so you make something up. That Marty, uh, not Leibowitz, I'm trying to think of his name, Marty Feldstein, the one-time chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors, wrote a series of papers shortly before he died on this. And he concluded that we're, we're underestimating the hedonic increase because we, you're putting something into the market basket after the improvement is over. That we put cars in that, into the market basket in 1935 when cars were already really good. And the, the big gain was from 1895 to 1935, and none of that made it into the adjustments to the CPI. Instead, what you got was the, the rising price of horses. And, and then we put this So, in fact, the, are you arguing that the rate of growth of the income per capita is not linear, but rather it's, it's even higher. exponential? No, it's, 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 it's log linear. 1.8 a well, year. That, that's a log linear chart, right? So that's a log linear chart. And it's not, yeah. what I'm saying is that the, the slope of the line should be just a little higher, especially in periods of dramatic transitions in technology, such as the early 21st century. And if, you know, we're, other than me, we look like a fairly young crowd here. If you remember back to how you grew up, you know, my family had one car. It was a beat-up old Ford. Uh, my father thought he was middle class. The house that we grew up in, you can't even give away now. It's some, what's called in the United States a HUD house, which is a house that the government buys in order to give to some some poor family. And uh, it, it was built to house, the, to house workers. But now it houses non-workers. And... If you want to house a worker, you have to build a 2,400-square-foot house. With a, or you won't be able to... It's not only you will not be able to sell it. You won't be allowed to build it because that's the minimum building code in a lot of these uh, suburban developments. Now, some people live in condos, which are smaller, which could be smaller. And so we've moved from... The starter house is a rented apartment, so the starter house is a condo. Not a really, not really a big shift, but but young millennial people looking for housing up where I live, that they, they want to buy a last house when they're thirty-five years old or forty years old. I don't think that most people did that two generations ago when I was a kid. So the standard of living has taken a big leap upward, and we, we were barely even aware of it. Do we do we get to some sort of peak housing, if you will, in the fewer arg argument, or as we get fewer and fewer people, you know, as you say, it was a small home, you had one home, today people have a home, it's much larger in square foot per person, then they also have a cottage, and they might even have a second home. And so... Oh. Yeah, we're going to need less less houses. Yeah, it seems to me if we go fewer, then and how, how what, what's the reflexive impact on sort of capitalism as a whole for 
for the fewer aspect of the way you approach the, the book? Well, that's a fair question. Uh, a decline in the price of something doesn't affect capitalism one way or another. Capitalism is the idea that if you produce a resource, it's yours. And if the price goes down, you will have a lower income because capital gains and losses are additive to income. And then the person who buys it from you will have a higher income because it will cost them less to live. So as we transition from baby boomers owning most of the good housing to a smaller, younger population uh, owning most of the good housing because I won't need it anymore. Uh, we should expect real estate to not appreciate and possibly decline substantially in areas where it's overbuilt. And now that we're all working from home, we, we think that's forever. Companies haven't yet begun to fully appreciate the cost of no social interaction at the office or conferences or meetings. But you, you, you don't discover new ideas or figure out new ways to do things when you sit at home and complete a series of tasks that you've been given by your boss. You, you do that through serendipity and through two engineers standing over a computer and saying, I wouldn't do it this way, I would do it that other way, or, or two car mechanics or, or two uh, people who are working on the insides of somebody's anatomy at the hospital. We, we seriously underestimate the value of collaborative work. So I think that we uh, could have a productivity problem in the short run because everyone thinks they're working as hard as they can, but they're not working on the, on the innovative part. And innovation is the only thing that makes the economy grow because if you do what you did yesterday exactly the same way, it may be a very decent standard of living, but you have a growth rate of zero. You have yeah, to I th- a little better the next day. I think implied in Mike's uh, question is a broader issue with what has been described by some as embedded growth obligations, right? Not only in the real estate market, but also in the stock market. The system itself is somewhat predicated in the idea of growth and the value of assets is sort of held uh, in addition to liquidity, uh, obviously, but the, the, this idea that the economy is going to continue to grow, demand is going to continue to grow, and that's why assets are going to uh, are going to continue continue to appreciate. The the issue then becomes when you have a transition period between and the other. So I, I guess the, the the possible pain or or, or the likely pain, uh, virtual certainty uh, through this transition period. How do you how do you see that kind of playing out from the current environment to this this uh, sort of techno-utopian uh, scenario that you're painting? Well, I, I think that if you're counting on uh, in conventional investment portfolios growing at real seven, they're not going to. And there may be a period in the more distant future when they do again. And that'll depend on a, a, a technological transition that we can't yet foresee. But, but at current prices, uh, growing at real seven is just about mathematically impossible. Uh, so you should budget for lower rates of return. 
does that mean that the economy is going to stop growing? I don't think so. Because we're looking at per capita numbers on these charts. And if the rate of growth of the population is lower, the rate of growth of the economy can be lower and you still get the same improvement per capita. Is there a threat to capitalism itself, which is simply the freedom to keep your own, keep keep the fruits of your own labor and reinvest them uh, only if the socialists take over because they want your money that there, there's no logical connection between population growth and capitalism or even between economic growth and capitalism if if stocks all paid a 7% dividend and had zero capital gains how would that be different from stocks all growing at in price at seven percent a year and paying zero dividends. It, it, what what the engine of of market returns is related to economic growth, but it isn't dependent on economic growth. Look at value stocks. On the long run, growth stocks and value stocks have had the same return. Value stocks are old economy, shrinking markets and so forth, and growth stocks are new economy, growing markets, and, and yet because of what we call valuation, because the value stocks are cheap, you, you can make just as much money, not this decade, but on average over time, in in the value as in the growth sector. So I, I don't, I'm not really answering the question. I, I don't have a completely developed theory of, uh, of growth that transfers through to investment markets, and neither does anyone else, by the way. <laughs> but I read about it a lot. And uh, we've had other periods of, of, uh, where we faced a lot of problems, and uh, we've our standard of living is so much higher than it was then. I'm thinking of the 70s, the 30s, the 1880s and 90s. These were all periods of tremendous technical innovation. And yet, markets didn't go up, and the GDP data didn't look so good. So I would uh, interesting. Would, so what what's underlying that? Part of it is just pricing. Uh, after a huge bull market, uh, the bull market is either a forecast that the economy will catch up to the market prices or that the market prices will catch up to the economy by going down. And we haven't, we haven't had a good bear market in a while. When I say a good bear market, I don't mean a crash like March of 2020. I mean one where yeah. the excesses are really run out. Start yeah. out and you're right, and you start a new bull market after that with different stocks. Yeah. No, but I'm thinking of even going back through time in history yeah. in, in some of the centuries past where we had huge technical um, revolutions, but I, I thought you might be referring to the GDP of those times. And in fact, that there was no GDP increase necessarily, but there was, you know, um, the increase in standard of living across the board. And so um, is it, is it a, a mistake in the measurement? Is it how, how is that? Yeah, happening? It's a mistake in the measurement. The most important Industrial Revolution was the second Industrial Revolution, the one that was cars and airplanes, electrical appliances, radio and so forth, roughly 1870 to 1930. 
and the GDP went up, but it didn't go up by a ratio that implied that that made clear the changes in the standard of living over that time. In, in 1870, the majority of Americans, and I presume Canadians, busted their asses all day in the, on a farm yeah. and lived a, had life expectancy. Life expectancy is around 50. And their wives stayed home and cooked for huge families. My, my grandmother-in-law, my, my wife's grandmother, had 15 children, which if you multiply by the number of meals in a day and the number of children and adults in the family, meant that she was cooking 353 meals a week. And they did not live near a grocery store, nor did they have the money to buy anything at a grocery store. They, no, they got it off the farm. It's a good and workforce to have on the farm, too, as a, as a guy who grew up on a farm. They had a workforce, and, and then other people had farms that grew other substances, and so they didn't just have to eat literally what they grew, but it was a small, self-contained economy. And uh, you, you didn't expect to live very long or have a lot of leisure while you were doing it. And uh, by 1930, we had an essentially modern economy. And, and people lived so much better that it uh, it's kind of hard to even describe that that change. In 1870, you couldn't call your mother unless she was in the next room, and neither could the king of England. Well, it was a queen. Neither could the queen of England. Uh, by 1930, everybody was doing it, and they were getting in their cars. Not literally everyone had a car, but almost everyone could could pick up their groceries in a car, and and visit somebody halfway across the country by taking a drive. So we're not experiencing changes of that magnitude now. and We shouldn't expect the kinds of market returns that we got over that period. This Ibbotson slash Jeremy Siegel, both of them are friends of mine. Roger Ibbotson is a very good friend. Um, seven, Real Seven is taken from a period when we had hypergrowth and in the most successful countries in the world, the U.S., the U.K., Canada, Australia, New Zealand. If you look at Russia, Russia was a growth stock in 1900. Germany was a, the biggest growth stock in 1900. Well, they blew themselves up. Russia through communism, Germany by losing wars. So, the expected return in 1900 couldn't have been real seven because the realized return on the winners was real seven. So the expected return had to have been lower because you had big losers. Japan, a country like Argentina, which didn't experience a collapse, but it just had a bad rate of return. So it, it, we're expecting too much out of markets if we think that we're going to save 10 or 15% of our incomes and it's going to make us rich. We'll have to work longer, save more, and hopefully not consume less. But if we don't work longer and save more, then we do have to consume less because it's an accounting identity. Stuff out equals stuff in plus return. But stuff well, I, I guess to some to some point though, just just a one more, Rich. Like you, you, with with expanding lifespans, expanding healthy lifespans. 
you do have the opportunity to work for a much longer period of time and take advantage of, of the compounding as well. So, I mean, it's, you know, I, th I think we're in a bygone era of, of retiring at 65 um, when most are. are healthy enough to work till 72 or 73 or 75. And, you know, that goes a long way to solving that, that issue. Anyway, I'm sorry to jump in there, Richard. Go yeah, ahead. And no, that, no I, that's great. That brings up an issue I wanted to bring up, but didn't think I could squeeze into an hour. I have a paper coming out called Work Longer. Uh, and it is basically says you get a double benefit out of it. it. Not only do you make more money, but you have fewer years to pay for with the money you've saved. And our, our health span isn't expanding as fast as our lifespan, especially if you're in a, you know, right now it's become fashionable to tell young people, don't go to college, learn a trade. But what are you going to do after 55? They can't all be the boss. And you don't want an 81-year-old roofer on your roof. That's <laughs> true. So you, we can't all work to 75, but a lot of us can. I'm, I'm getting there. Uh, I'm 67. But, but I, uh, I've had to cut back a little because I don't have, quite have the uh, desire. I have absolutely no desire to have a full-time job and a boss and a, and a paycheck. I, I'm self-employed. I take what comes in over the transom, and uh, so far I've been successful at it. But I, I modesty aside, I, I'm not a person of average ability. And a person of average ability may have to do something that's quite uncomfortable for people over 65, or frankly, over 55. I, I'm not sure I want a roofer who's over 55. But Larry, putting aside for a second the, the expectation of Marcus and, and staying within the, the realm of the economic expectations and, and sort of this age of abundance, uh, I, I've heard some what I would describe as straw man criticism of this idea of techno-optimism that has been put forward by you and guys like Steven Pinker as well. And a lot of that uh, skepticism of that thesis would come from from the idea that we're hardwired to focus on the overly negative. You know, it's 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 made evident in the news flow if it bleeds, it leads, and all that stuff. So, right. putting that straw man version aside, what are some of the the biggest challenges to your your uh, hypothesis of abundance? What are some of the variables that you're watching for that would make you rethink and, and, and reassess your hypothesis for for the optimism that you that you put forth? One, half of the population is below average. This economy seems to be set up as a war between the smart and the stupid. We're the smart one. The tax rates that would be necessary to support half the population would be unbelievable and very damaging to incentives. And if, you ha if half the population is sitting around collecting benefits, they become dangerous. I'm going to stop there because the, the, there isn't, because it's 356, I guess 456. And so we don't have a hard stop on, on at the top of the hour unless you do. No, not at all. But people's so, patience wears thin after an hour. Um, well, it's, just, it's just, for us, it's just the four of us. So Okay. <laughs> if <laughs> if they want to leave, they can leave and come back and listen to or, or they can fast forward later when they watch yes. the listen yes. to the recording. So that's not no bother. 
let's call time at, at, at 5.15. Okay. Um, it's Another worry is if our environmental costs turn out to be much larger than the standard model. The, the standard model is 200 million people are going to have to move uphill, but it's going to take half a century to a century for that to play out. Uh, certain parts of the Middle East and South Asia may become too hot to support agriculture, but Russia and Canada are going to do great. Um, the, the environment, William Nornhaus won a Nobel Prize for calculating these environmental costs, and it's 6 or 7% of global GDP, or a couple of years' growth. So we'll be as well off in 2102 as we would have in 2100 without the environmental costs. Well, if that's off by a factor of 50, that's something to really worry about. I don't think it is, but we haven't begun to fight this war. We don't have any nuclear plants to substitute for, for coal and, oil, and, and the oil in our cars. We're building electric cars like maniacs, but we're not building any way to power the cars. So we will. Larry, have you looked into Nordhaus's seminal papers? And uh, no, not detailed to criticize. Yeah. Uh, I, I've only read the more or less the top layer. Because um, Steve Keene is, is a bit of an expert in Nordhaus's um, methods. And, and because of his assertions, I went a ways down the rabbit hole and I found it surprising that their models are based on um, cross-sectional data, which evaluates the difference in productivity between um, what is observed, for example, in New York or at New York latitude versus Florida at Florida latitude. And so observing that Florida productivity in Florida is X percent lower than the productivity in New York and the average temperature in Florida is X percent higher than the average temperature in New York. And then extrapolating this to assume that if the average temperature in New York becomes uh, the same as the average temperature in Miami, that this will only have a difference equal to the difference in productivity between those two. Now, of course, if, you know, if you have a, yeah, it's uh, more 10%, than that. Well, if you have a 10% average temperature dif uh, difference, um, then, you know, half the current ab ab above sea level uh, land will be underwater. <laughs> and there'll be such mag migra mass migration and displacement that the world's economy will be unrecognizable. Um, so I, I, I think... Going all the way back to Nordhaus's assumptions, and I know as I look through the IPCC documents and and so much of the the research from that time takes Nordhaus's models as being um, gospel. Gospel. Um, I I just think it's worth sort of digging into those models more closely, and then if those models are off by a factor of ten or a factor of fifty, or if the models are much more nonlinear in effect than Nordhaus. Like Nordhaus assumed a, a linear model, 
right? If they're if they're in fact nonlinear instead of linear, then obviously the impacts are going to be much more substantial than here. Right. Well, I mean, I agree. The world is only so big. If New York becomes Florida and Florida becomes Manaus, Brazil, then what becomes New York? Well, you know, it's somewhere in Labrador. And the the resources to support a population of twenty eight million or whatever the New York metropolitan area is don't exist in Labrador, and eventually you you get a uh, turn down in productivity much sharper than than Nordhaus would be uh, projecting using that model. However, not not absolutely none of the uh, uh, this land disappearance that's been predicted by the standard model has actually occurred. Uh, Southern Louisiana, which is uh, where it's most obvious, uh, is it wasn't productive land in the first place because it was under about one foot of water, and now it's under, well, it's a foot every century and a half, so now it's about under about two and a half feet of water. Uh, those are, that's good for alligators, but it doesn't affect our it doesn't affect our GDP very much because they weren't producing any. We looked at the Mekong Delta and the amount of land loss is one or two percent. The, the entire Mekong Delta would disappear if the ice caps melted. Mm-hmm. But, but that's a pretty extreme forecast. The, the part, if the rise in sea levels of a foot in a foot every century and a half were to double or triple, you still wouldn't lose the Mekong Delta or the other large population area, which is threatened, which is Bangladesh. You might lose a piece of Miami because the geniuses in Florida built it on land that was five feet below sea level. In New Orleans, they have dikes to keep the water out. But in Florida, they have hopes and dreams. Yeah, fair enough. And by the way, I didn't, I didn't want to derail it, but it's just interesting. It's yeah, sort of think about more interesting than going how different models data slides. You know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to go back to the presentation if we can have an open conversation like this. Let, let me, let me go back just to see if there's anything worth bringing yeah, into the conversation. Though I, I need to. Uh, oh, that's not. I need to find it. Um, can you see the screen now? Yes, sir. Okay, I'm going to go ahead. This has to do with past improvement in health, food, and so forth, and then life expectancy. I'm just going to skip it. Go to greener. And here's your greener topic slide. Air pollution has all but disappeared in the United States, Canada, Western Europe, and it moved to China and India. Um, Sulfur dioxide has all but disappeared in London, as has smoke. Uh, The reforestation of Europe is made visible by this uh, GIF. Um, Looks like uh, we're going in the right direction here even though the population of Europe has grown tremendously since 1900. They moved to the cities and aren't digging up the whole countryside to grow food. But yeah, let's, let's look at what we would actually do uh, to deal with our environmental challenges. Uh, one is build nuclear reactors. This is a molten salt reactor. 
Uh, it's a very popular topic of discussion right now, although mm-hmm. it was invented as a concept, and I don't think they built one, in the 1950s when the idea of if, if a nuclear plant's biggest risk is, is a meltdown, why don't we build one build one that's already melted down? And it turns out molten salt salt melts at a high enough temperature to uh, absorb the heat from a nuclear reaction and and uh, then drive a turbine, a, a water based turbine. And th- this is now on the drawing board for the revival of the nuclear age. That we were, we were all going to have electricity that was too cheap to meter. 50 years ago or 75 years ago and now now we're going to try to get back on the horse by convincing people that Chernobyl was quasi-intentional. Three Mile Island didn't kill anybody and Fukushima had to do with placing a nuclear reactor on an earthquake fault that's also on the ocean. <coughs> and and very few people died there too. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people died digging coal out of the ground or transporting coal or oil by truck and train. Uh, this, this is a yeah. This is a thing designed like a Socotra Island dragon tree, just to look pretty on the streets of Boston, for sucking carbon dioxide out of the air. And this is an expensive nuclear energy intensive way and of, of getting rid of the carbon dioxide that we've already put in the air plus the carbon dioxide that we're going to put in there are other ways that there, there there are various projects being funded mostly by by billionaires some by some foundations and governments for a carbon sequestration put it back in the ground Getting the carbon out of the air and putting it back in the ground is, is expensive, but it uh, it's more expensive for us to all boil away. <laughs> and then uh, the last the, the last line of defense we have, and I don't like any, actually any of the ones on top here, but you could put eyeglasses on the Earth, sunglasses on the Earth, with space mirrors. There was a cuckoo plan that I. I read about in one of Stuart Brand's books. But, you know, he's a dreamer. Uh, 18 trillion butterfly-shaped and sized space mirrors in, in orbit in the R1 point or G1 point. What I, I'm not a physicist here. Between the, the Earth and the moon? or be, be, No, between, between the Earth and the sun. The sun, yeah. Yeah, the moon is, is doesn't doesn't heat us up <laughs> between the earth and the sun in a place that uh, would reduce the solar radiation reaching the earth by 2%. What could possibly go wrong? Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> the unintended consequences. Of I, some of my talks, I put a mastodon standing on an ice flow and I say, this is what could possibly go wrong. Why don't we cure the, global warming by starting a new ice age where I am sitting it was under two miles of ice uh, only 18,000 years ago and it could be again it could be again if we do nothing we're, uh, we're clearly between two ice ages and the 
only question is how hot it's going to get. So uh, I guess the real question is uh, the, the, the duration of the transition period and how much pain is going to be inflicted on the, the general populace, right? Because I guess uh, uh, the evolution of technology is inexorable. It's going to happen. Uh, as you mentioned, there's so many different uh, avenues for, for improvement and for our ability to uh, uh, terramorph and, and, and improve uh, geoengineering and our ability for carbon capture and all that. But how long will it take till we can do this at scale? And what are some of the costs that we might all uh, be inflicted with in the coming decades? If, if in fact the worst fears from, from climate change are, are true. Yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, I think that you want this to happen as slowly as possible, but we don't control that. What we do control is how quickly we adapt and how quickly we put into place mitigation technologies, some of which I've gone over, but the easy ones everyone knows, which is to emit less CO2. If that is the critical variable, we also hear that methane and water vapor are critical variables, that fluctuations in the radiation reaching the Earth from the sun is a critical variable. We had the sun is a slightly variable star. We, we just had a uh, low solar activity period. The Earth did start to cool a little bit for a few years and then got hot again pretty quickly. So I'm not an environmental scientist and there are so many moving parts that even the best environmental scientists can't seem to keep them all straight in their heads at once. They Each one specializes in something different. Yeah, that's fair. I think the main concern would be that however slim the possibility for that worst case scenario, the negative outcome would be so large that one would have to contend with it in the sort of layering out of the probabilities and, and sort of the mitigation. Uh, so, but to, to touch upon the point you were raising earlier, uh, what are some of the incentives that you see that we might be able to put into place on the nearer term to help drive us towards some of these uh, uh, improvements in, in, in habits and, and behaviors that would, would lead us to a, a better outcome? Well, a lot of people have talked about a carbon tax. I'm don't. I'm not in. I'm not against it. But how big would the tax have to be for people to cut their carbon use to a level that really helps the environment? Well, you know, at, at thirty dollar a gallon gas would get a lot done, but it would create a second Great Depression ten times as bad as the first one. A lot of people would starve. Productivity would fall to near zero in areas that require a lot of, of transportation because we don't have the zero emission transportation in place. We've already got $5 a gallon gas, and it isn't getting rid of the problem. And although people are buying more electric cars and they're driving less. They're partly driving less because there's nowhere to go. You don't have to drive to work, and you can just walk over with a cup of coffee in your shorts and go to work, you're going to see a decline in miles driven. Now, we, we were seeing a decline in miles driven before that. 
but it's not enough. And in China and India and Africa, that they don't need less energy, they need more energy. There are still people living in Africa who spend four hours a day collecting sticks to burn in unvented huts or where they poison themselves with carbon monoxide. You do not want to tell them to stop using energy. You want to provide them with sources of clean, safe energy. And that's being done. Electrification in Africa is taking place at an incredible rate, faster than anything we ever did here during the Rural Electrification Administration in the United States. So they need it more than we do. And it is, as, as we reduce our first world energy usage, they're going to continue to increase theirs. And so I see nuclear power as being critical. We're using 1.5 petawatts as a, as, a pop, as a human race, using 1.5 petawatts of electricity per hour. For everyone to live at the level of the poorest first world country, which is Portugal, we need five petawatts globally. So we need to adjust a little more than triple. We're not going to do that with wind, solar, hydroelectric, geothermal, unless we work on it for 300 years. We need the nuclear, and we, we need every source of power we get. We need cleaner burning fossil fuels because CO2 isn't the only emission that you should care about. Are you optimistic on the um, mass deployment of nuclear? I don't know. Having watched the COVID epidemic unfold, I'm not optimistic that people are doing what's best for themselves, even when the incentives are laid out right in front of them. But we've got a population here which is 75, I think, 75 or 78 percent of adults have had at least one dose of the vaccine. Well, the other 25% are 75 million people. And some large percentage of them are going to get sick and keep, you know, I can say, well, I don't care about them, although I do. People do. But even if you didn't care whether they got sick or not, they're going to keep the economy from reopening itself. So this yeah, people. They also they also may deprive those who are vaccinated from healthcare on other issues. Yes, by overcrowding the the, right. the healthcare system right. as it is. So, yeah, by consuming all the health. Yeah, yeah, numerous knock on effects that uh, people tend to overlook. Yeah, yeah. So, do I think that people will get used to nuclear plants in every city? small to medium-sized standardized so that you only have to train one group of nuclear engineers and fly them to the nuclear plant that needs a repair instead of having a custom design for each one? Well, the French have done it. I don't think the French is particularly rational. (laughs) They make some good food and wine, though. Maybe that's what it takes. (laughs) We're getting... Our Americans are getting their food and wine act together faster than we're faster than we're getting our energy act together. That's 
true. It, it, there's now like a you know, some type of gastro pub in every little city, and all 50 states have wineries, including Alaska. Alaska has a winery? Yes. Okay, that Southern, I didn't Alaska, Southern Alaska has a climate very much like just like British Columbia. And Interesting. Okay. surprisingly warm. But it's, uh, I think they have a winery because they, you know, somebody told them you're not a real state unless you have a winery. <laughs> the question is, do they have a gastropub? Yeah. Well, yeah, no, there's good food. I think, I, think, I think it's fitting to end on that note of optimism, which is yeah. that there's now a gastropub in every city. And a and a. <laughs> And a winery in every, in every 50 states. I, I think so, and you will find me in one of them. <laughs> dining, at, dining at wining and dining quite comfortably and encouraging people to look for solutions instead of despair that there aren't any. It's a great way to end it. Absolutely. Well, thank you. I hope you send me a URL so I can publicize this to all of my friends and my, my readers. Yeah, and uh, that it'll remain up for a while because some some of them uh, have a long backlist of stuff they want to look at. And where can people find you, Larry? Uh, are you on any other social medias? Uh, we've we've mentioned the book. Are there any other projects that are coming on the horizon apart from the paper that you mentioned that uh, you want to mention? Yeah, I'd love to actually advertise the fact. Uh, I'm not going to hold up a co- copy, but I have to walk in another room to do that, but I have a second book. It's called Unknown Knowns. Uh, the subtitle is On Economics, Investing, Progress, and Folly. And it's a collection of my articles from the last 10 years. And it's available on Amazon. Just type in Unknown Knowns. Not known unknowns. That's the Donald it's another guy. With the nice other guy. And then uh, my website is LarrySiegel.org. And everything I've ever done is on it. So it's spelled like you see on your screen. Larry, the customary way, and Siegel, the old, the old German way, not any of these newfangled S-C-G-A-L things. It's S-I-E-G-E-L dot org. And my email address is on the website. You want to write to me. Uh, it's a little complicated, but you just find it there. And uh, thank you for your time. And uh, thank you in advance if you buy one of my books. <laughs> thanks, Larry. Thanks for, thanks so much for showing up and for sharing and for being a good sport. Well, you guys and, are great um, interviewers. You, you actually ask tough questions, and and when I say I don't know something, you you, you accept no for an answer. That, that's different, and <laughs> I very much appreciate it. It's good to hear. Thank yeah, you. Yes, we appreciate you that. as well. Thank thanks, you. Guys. Have a great weekend, all. Yes, Thank you. Cue back. the music, Connie. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode by visiting investresolve.com forward slash podcasts. We also encourage you to engage with us on Twitter by searching the handle at investresolve. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email or social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that this podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again and see you next time.